0: Welcome to the Savvy Black Birther, a podcast about all things black birth. Each week we inspire, cultivate, validate, and protect the voice of black birthers as consumers of healthcare in the United States. It equips our listeners with evidence-based information so they become savvy healthcare consumers during their pregnancy, birth, and the postpartum. Now here's your host, the community's midwife, Takia Sakina Ballard, certified nurse midwife. Hello everyone, and thank you so much for joining me for episode five of the Savvy Black Birther. The title of this episode is Deconstructing the Prenatal Visit. And we're gonna take a look at the components of a typical prenatal visit when receiving care in the hospital, birth center, and home settings. And for this episode specifically, we have midwives from each of those settings that will give us some insight. Now, I'm sure you guys are all aware of how difficult it would be to grab a whole bunch of midwives and have them available at the same time. You know, babies are being born every minute and every second, every hour of the day. And so it is a virtually impossible task. However, I know how important it is for you to have this information. And so I've decided to do this particular episode a little differently. We're going to interview each of these midwives from all of their respective places and with their wonderful expertise. We're going to interview them individually. And so I want you to sit back, relax, grab a cup of tea, and have a listen because we're going to really break this prenatal visit down for you so you can have better understanding and more insight. Here we go. Paula is a hospital basement wife working in New York City. She's a native New Yorker born and raised in Queens. Paula's journey in women's health started in the basement of a community building in South Bronx, holding a space for women to heal through emotional release work. It was through this work that she found the importance of being balanced on mental, physical, and spiritual levels, and how it impacted one's overall health. It also was through this work that she began her path to birth starting off as a doula, then going to nursing school, and eventually culminating her studies at SUNY Downstate, where she obtained her master's degree in nursing and midwifery. As a nurse, she, she gained experience in reproductive endocrinology, supporting and guiding women through their fertility journey. As a midwifery student and graduate, she was able to experience the differences between home birth, birth center, and hospital. Thank and so you. So welcome, Thank Paula. you very much for having me today. So when we talk about uh, the experience of a prenatal visit, and we look at the components of prenatal care, how does pre- prenatal care change throughout the
1: pregnancy as it advances? Do you have any any um, so, insights? So, I mean, in my that. experience in the um, in the hospital, um, when I see a patient from the very beginning, we start off with um, just the basic basic um, introduction, seeing if you know how they're feeling about the pregnancy. It's a very like the first trimester might be like. a, like emotional, um, you know, like not sure how they're feeling about the pregnancy, or they may be very excited if it was a very desired pregnancy. Um, So, you know, we start Mm -hmm. off with just um, asking them questions um, about them, like their health history and everything, and then doing, um, doing like basic, uh, basic blood work, which entitles a lot of blood work, (laughs) because I always tell them to make sure that you have eaten and drank Mm -hmm. and everything. Um, So usually the beginning is that depending on um, also their age, we might do offer them some early genetic testing. Um, And then as the pregnancy progresses, there's like different stages, right? So there's more um, involvement in listening to the uh, to the fetal heart. And, um, and then the fundal height, which is when we check the belly, make sure that the, um, the fetus is growing along with the amount of uh, the age or the am- amount of time of pregnancy that she is currently at. Um, and then we'll do different gen- uh, testing at that point, whether it's a you know glucose test to make sure that she hasn't developed glucose intolerance um, and also checking her blood pressures throughout the pregnancy. Uh, making sure that she doesn't develop preeclampsia, which can occur after 20, uh, 24 weeks, um, you know, and, and so forth, right? And so we start seeing the woman a lot more, uh, more uh, frequently as she progresses in the pregnancy. Um, and then we start asking her, you know, what she's looking forward to, she's planning on breastfeeding, and she's planning on doing birth control after, and things like that. So it kind of, um, encompasses a whole different <laughs> different things that we have to incorporate into our visits. Right. So as the as I guess as the pregnancy
0: advances, then your your um, level of questioning or uh, education increases as well as the, the birthing person gets closer and closer to Correct. delivery. So are there are there any parts of this process, especially specifically from a hospital-based perspective? any parts of this process that, um, a a client or patient could say, well, I'm not
1: sure that I want to do this or have an option Mm -hmm. with. Of course. I mean, I think, I think that sometimes women don't think that they can, um, decline something. Um, but there are, you know, like I'll explain to them genetic testing, for example, that's one thing, you know, um, that they can decide whether they want to do or not, um, especially if it's more like invasive, like an amniocentesis, um, if, especially, you know, if, if they're okay with the blood, that's fine, but they might say, no, I don't want an amnio, um, at this point, it's not going to change my feelings towards my, this pregnancy. Um, and so that's one thing. The other is, um, For example, vaccines. Um, I'll ask them if they want the flu vaccine or the Tdap vaccine at some point in their pregnancy, and they may or may not want it. And so, um, you know, I make sure I give them reading material ahead of time, and then I tell them, tell me in that next visit if you want the shot. Um, And then the glucose test, Mm. I feel like, which is, it's interesting though, in the hospital, I feel like we don't really make it as optional but um they do have you know sometimes we'll do finger sticks instead if they for some reason can't um uh tolerate it because some women will say they have thrown up after they (laughs) have taken that test and they just can't their body just doesn't tolerate it so then really we can offer them the um the monitoring the finger stick monitoring um but they might not necessarily Mm -hmm. be aware of that um yeah, so I think right. I think that the, there's different. I think those are the main things. Right.
0: So with some what Paula is talking about is the uh, glucose test, which is that test that you take that really yucky tasting drink. Some people say that it's yucky tasting. And so some people are not able to tolerate it. So um, in some cases, some some facilities will offer you an alternative. Um, have you ever had clients that uh, refuse completely, and has that what what does that look like potentially? Um, well,
1: I've had patients who don't show up for there <laughs> until like later, until like later uh, on, um, and so they'll either have to do it later on, or we, um, like I said, we we monitor their finger sticks. Uh, we'll have to say you know do this, but explain to them what the risks are. You know, uh, if you are if you are diabetic, and we're not. We're not, we're not controlling it or we're not monitoring it, then this can ca- lead to stillbirth or it can cause, you know, difficulties later on in the pregnancy. Have you noticed in, in your practice at all um,
0: how things have shifted um, in terms of pregnancy care when it comes down to the impact of the healthcare system? Um, I'm sure you're, you know, the risk of uh, women, specifically black and indigenous women of color, um, have faced some of these statistics regarding birth and pregnancy care. Um, I'm sure that's not news to you. And so how have you seen some of this impact the prenatal care portion, um, especially specific to the care that you're providing?
1: Yeah. So I, I noticed that a lot of women, um, will come in and I haven't seen them in like months or weeks. And I'm like, what happened? Why'd you miss your appointment? They're like, oh my insurance. So um, one of the things that I've seen is that there's a break in insurance. Um, for some women, they we lose them to care because like they they'll miss a couple of their visits because they don't have insurance. They're not able to do schedule schedule their sonograms. They're not able to come back for their visits because for some reason um it's not taking their insurance or their insurance is canceled. I don't really understand. I, I haven't really been able to identify what the issue is, but it's been common. Like I've seen it happen to a couple of women. Um, and I, I just don't understand, you know, I don't understand why that occurs. Um, and the other thing is that some women who don't other, who otherwise aren't eligible for health insurance, uh, will come and be only monitored during their pregnancy and will catch a lot of their pre, maybe preexisting conditions, like whether it's diabetes or high blood pressure. Um, I've had a woman who, who I saw postpartum, I think she was past her six weeks and her blood pressure was so elevated and there was nothing I could do because her, her medication wouldn't be covered. You know, like there was, I had to send her to the emergency room um, to be evaluated. But after that, like, what happens? You know, her blood pressure was dangerously high. It's so sad that that's the only time in a woman's uh, lifetime that if she's not eligible for health insurance otherwise, that that's the only way that she can get care. So it sounds like, uh, is, you know, um, a, break, a broken system, really,
0: when it comes down to the insured um, pregnant person. Um, Really, they can get insurance um, on the state level. Most states will allow them to have insurance based on um, a positive pregnancy test. Um, However, what's happening, it sounds, with the Medicaid is is delay in coverage. um, And then sometimes um, a disconnection of that coverage, especially if they cannot verify financial um, worth or financial need, um, a lot of times there's paperwork that needs to be submitted and, and perhaps um, students or patients may not understand what to do um, in order to give that information to uh, those caseworkers. And so sometimes you do see that break. And then what happens is it's is connecting in the um, services that the patient is now receiving. And especially like you you so eloquently said, when someone is um, experiencing um, Dangerous complications of pregnancy, and first and foremost they're delayed and they're in coming to you to be seen and then when they're there, they might have inadequate um, coverage there's your hands are tied in terms of what you can offer uh, to the to this client or this patient so it's it's an interesting mix of unfortunately the United States has you know, all of these advancements in technologies, but we do not have universal health care. And so it is a commodity and a commodity that many people cannot afford. Um, and so I, I understand, I mean, that's a huge piece um, to consider when we're looking at health care and especially how it impacts prenatal mm-hmm. care. So when you're looking at mm-hmm. prenatal care and all of the problematic things that we see, Um, that face Black and Indigenous Mm -hmm. people. What are some of the other things other than access to care and insurance and lack of resources? Are there other pieces um, that you've seen or other impacts that you've
1: seen to prenatal? Yeah, of course. Um, Also, it's just um, um, specifically like because uh, Black women and Indigenous um, or women of color in general just tend to come to these, low um income clinics uh, that are very high volume um they will tend to have more uh mm-hmm. like less time you know like less time allotted or long wait times and all this leads to frustration because it's sometimes like it's like they're waiting for a very long time for just like 10-15 minutes you know of a visit and everything you know mm-hmm. things might get missed or um I mean, I, you know, I think providers do the best they can, but um, but I think that it, it might uh, prevent them from being able to ask questions that they may want, or they might forget, or um, I don't know, like they might just not feel like it's very personable, like very kind of, you know, just going through the motions, um, which is kind of sad, you know, everybody when you're pregnant, I think for the most part, if you're excited about it, you want to go through and ask questions and have time and enjoy your visits. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that that's also mm -hmm,
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So it it sounds like because of where you work um, in New York City and we know we hear a lot of um, the statistics surrounding um, birth and subsequent birth after birth and for the Black and Indigenous person. Um, New York is actually 12 times more likely um, than white, white counterparts to experience um, morbidity death related uh, to birth. And so it just sounds like to me that there are some very, very um, strong um, obstacles in the way of, of an individual receiving adequate prenatal care um, from the lack of resources, again, from um, their the lack the inability to access the system and then going into systems that are not um, well resourced with staff and, and education and funding to take adequately take care of these individuals who are already on the bottom um, in terms of statistics. So um, how has that affected your your individual midwifery practice? Um,
1: I mean I think that personally i would i would like to be able to spend more time you know i went into midwifery because i wanted to take care of pregnant women <laughs> and be able to sit there and have you know have them enjoy do education like to me education is so important and i really try to squeeze it in there but sometimes Sometimes it's just your brain, it's like one place and the other, and you want to, you know, you want to do everything that you possibly can and make sure you don't miss anything um, that you give them the adequate referrals and, or wherever the patient, whatever it is that the patient may need at that moment. Um, But I think that it it can be, it can be difficult um, being in that situation. And I think also as a Spanish speaker, I, I, I feel like privileged because at least I'm able to communicate with my patients. Um, a lot of times that is in itself a barrier for a lot of women. Um, you know, some, Sometimes the front desk doesn't speak Spanish and they're like trying to understand what they're saying and there's this whole back and forth um, or the education materials may not be in Spanish. And I'm not just talking about paper, but like if there's any classes or things like that, um, you know, it might be lacking because of the low amount of resources that we may have um and so you know i think those are things that affect my um my practice as a midwife even though you know i think we we do the best we can
0: sounds like the system doesn't allow you to be the midwife you intended to be in most cases i think sometimes Um, that just because you're you're some yeah it sounds like you're it sounds like you're limited a little bit um and that you try your best to Do what you can and ensure that when you are encountering patients and you're speaking Spanish to them, especially for those who are Spanish speakers and do not have a large English vocabulary, they probably feel a world of difference being um, in your care, uh, that they can speak to you and at least have that um, support of um, language not being a barrier. That is a huge deal. Especially in larger cities when there are multiple um, people from different backgrounds and different countries who have which uh, um translation and, and appropriate um, translation of information to patients during this prenatal time is so important. Um, and I know a lot of times, especially having worked in New York City hospitals myself, we are using translation machines or mm-hmm. uh, operators, and it can be very difficult to translate. Um, words and meanings of words, especially medical words and giving the adequate um, um, message behind the, the words that you're trying to convey to a patient who perhaps may not understand um, your, your, what you're saying in, in the English language that is. So I, I definitely could understand what you're, what you're talking about and how um, you have to try your best to uh, do your best given the system. Um, and so I'm sure that patients are definitely appreciative when, when
1: it's, a, you know, when they can mm. be. Yeah, I'm, I think that the most important thing is for women to be, um, in, to inform themselves and educate themselves, um, like through podcasts like these, um, through reading material, through um, just listening to other women who've gone through the process. But I think, yeah, I, I think coming to with questions to your provider, like being informed and just asking what, what is important to you and why, you know, why we're doing certain things, um, because m- maybe providers are really well-meaning and they really would like to be able to take the time and ask or sit down and explain every single thing, but um, it, it just might not be part of the, the list of things that we have to run down <laughs> to, you know. I think it's also a cultural thing. I see, like, some patients who come from other countries that just, like, expect me to, like, do everything for them, like, in terms of uh, just, yeah, you know more than I do, you know? And I'm like, no, like, you know, this is an option. Like, this is your body, you know? It, I think it's, it's interesting to see that, too, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I definitely am not a proponent of... You know, doctor or midwife or anybody else knows better than the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is unfortunately a, an indoctrination that has been uh, disseminated across culture, across you know um, continent. That the healthcare expert is more um, knowledgeable than mm-hmm. the patient, and and in some ways that may be uh, true when it comes down to a specific process that we're talking about a healthcare process. I think. Families and and patients just need to know that they can ask questions. Um, Like you you were saying earlier, that um, there's this idea that um, the doctor or the midwife or the provider knows best, and that sometimes can um, really uh, take the voice away from a person where they don't feel like they have any say in their own care and that they are just doing what they're told because we know we know best mm-hmm. and so that is not the case you know yourself um, better than us and you also while we might have the education to talk about the healthcare issues or concerns um, we still should be deferring to you as an expert because you're an expert in yourself mm-hmm. and so be you know um, empowered to to bring questions to your appointments um, especially if you have them, and try not to um, look to other sources like Google and things like that because they can lead to fear based information. Where you need to be getting your information is from your provider and like Paula, who listens to you and who's willing to help you um, during this stage of your life. So, um, Paula, um, if anyone wanted to follow you or reach out to you or anything like that, where could people find you? So I can be
1: found on Instagram under Rebirth underscore Midwifery. Um, yeah, feel free to email me or message me um, through there and and um, ask me any questions you may want to know. Wonderful! Thank you
0: so much, Paula, for joining in the conversation today. And I hope that um, if you guys are looking for a midwife in New York City, a hospital-based midwife in the city, I can speak for Paula. She's good. <laughs> She's a good one. So go ahead and check her out and reach out to her um, and see how you can become one of her patients.
1: It was a pleasure to do this with you. I
0: thank you so much for being willing to, uh, to talk with me um, on this podcast and to share um, with clients because people need to really hear how midwifery care in the hospital-based setting works so they can be well-informed It's that time in a show where we feature this week's Savvy Black Birther question. Let's hear what they have to say. This week's question comes from an Instagram follower at Sakina Health. The Instagram follower wants to know more about GBS prevention treatment. In order for me to uh, answer this question, I must first explain what GBS is. Group Beta Streptococcus, or GBS, is a bacteria that's naturally occurring in our environment. It will be presented or shown in about 10 to 30 percent of people, and we really see this uh, bacteria thriving in the bladder and uh, digestive tract. And for those people, those 10 to 30 percent of people, typically adults are not affected by it. Uh, Our bodies have become accustomed to it. And if anything, we might see a mild infection um, of our bladders or what have you. And so we're really not bothered by it. However, newborns who are uh, completely coming into this world with a blank slate have never been introduced to bacteria. And so it can be potentially harmful for them. However, Um, there is such a thing called colonization. And colonization just basically means your body has this bacteria living in it. Um, And that 10 to 30% can be colonized, but may not be infected. And that same thing can happen for newborn. 50% of those babies can have that GBS transmitted to them and they can um, become colonized. However, only one to 2% of those babies will then um, potentially have life-threatening infections um, or or effects from the GBS. And again, their bodies are uh, new to bacteria and um, their immune systems have not really had to deal with bacteria. And so some babies are challenged by um, eradicating um, the infection. So with that, there is a standard of care um That says that we should co- potentially look at uh, giving the birthing individual antibiotics while they 're in labor, and the reason why we don't like to give it to them prior to labor specifically is because this bacteria. Can um, have heavy colonization, so be a lot or in number, um, and then it could also have a lower colonization, and that can change within time. And so you can give someone a normal antibiotic, and in a couple of weeks, the bacteria will be back because their bodies have um, been uh, used to carrying this bacteria around. And so it's better to give antibiotics during the time of labor to eradicate the bacteria completely for that individual, and so that is the standard of care. The antibiotic that is treat treating um, the GBS is uh, a penicillin-type antibiotic, and so it will be in the penicillin family. For those who have um, any allergies to penicillin, typically what happens is there is an alternative that's given, and so some people are looking at antibiotics and really Uh, are thinking well, they don't want to have antibiotics during labor or if at all during their pregnancy. There are alternatives, however, there are not many studies out there to support those alternatives. So I would suggest that you have this conversation with your care provider and you look at the different remedies or potential uh, treatment regimens that you can use while you're in labor uh, to eradicate the GBS while you're uh, having your baby. And so, a good place to start to find this information and to really get a well rounded um, understanding of GBS and, and the, the evidence that's out there regarding GBS would be to go to Evidence Based Birth and specifically type in their search engine there, GBS, and you should be able to get to that page that gives you a good synopsis of the evidence that's out there and reviews the standards of care. One other thing that I usually tell my clients um, would be to really look at your your health and well-being and your diet currently. Um, and the way that you could do that is by uh, boosting your immune system and really supporting your health during your pregnancy. Um, I really encourage individuals to consider probiotics and prebiotics because those are going to help to keep that bacterial flora in the gut balanced. And that will also help to, if there's GBS present, to really uh, lower that colonization of GBS so that it's undetectable and doesn't cause any problems later on in the pregnancy as you're entering your third stage of pregnancy. And, And by the way, we usually test for GBS between 35 and 37 weeks of pregnancy, the latter part of the gestation. Um, And so, I just want to make sure that you understand the importance of gut health, the importance of overall wellness and health for yourself. Um, And so, consider taking probiotics and a prebiotic while pregnant, and also things that are going to boost your immune system vitamins E, A, and C, um, and uh, making sure that you can even consider echinacea tea or garlic. Uh, definitely review this with your healthcare provider prior to um, using some of these, but these are some trusted remedies that midwives hold. So I hope that that answers your question um, and and definitely that you feel a little bit more informed regarding GBS and GBS prevention. Now back to the show. Up next is Tranesha Williams. Tranesha began her career in healthcare in 1996 after completing a bachelor's of science in psychology with a concentration in women's health at Holbert and Williams Williams Smith Colleges. She then graduated from Hunter College with a master's in public health with a concentration in women's health. After completing a master's of public health, she served as a coordinating manager of health education in the OBGYN department at Bellevue Hospital, the community outreach manager at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and as a health educator with the Northern Manhattan Perinatal Partnership. Chenisha became a lamont certified childbirth educator in 2002 and became a fellow in 2017 and completed her master's of science in midwifery at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in 2003. She spent the next decade as a midwife and educator in New York City hospitals and founded her home birth practice Midwife in the City in 2014. She currently teaches midwifery students at SUNY Downstate. In June 2019, she became the director of midwifery at Brooklyn Midwifery Group until July 2020, where she carried the center through the coronavirus pandemic and opened a second location, the Jazz Birthing Center of Manhattan. In 2019, Trenisha was appointed to the board of directors of the American Association of Birth Centers. She is the president and founder of a nonprofit called Midwifery Collective where she is working with three midwives to form Haven Midwifery Birthing Center. She has attended over a thousand births in her career in both the hospital, home, and birth center. She is married, an aunt of 12, and a native New Yorker who resides in Brooklyn. Welcome, Tranesha. Thank you. So, um, as we know, we're speaking to three midwives, midwives from the birth center, the hospital, and the home setting, and Tranesha is coming to us with a plethora of experience and knowledge. More specifically, she's going to talk to us about prenatal care specific to the birth center setting. So Trenesha, what are the components of prenatal care and how does it change as the pregnancy advances with respect to receiving care in a a birth center setting?
2: Well, prenatal care is a little bit different when you want to consider work when you wanna consider uh, receiving your care at a birth center. It would initially start by you, of course, contacting the center, And almost all birth centers will have something called an orientation where you and your family and your partners and your other loved ones that want to know about the services offered at the facility would encourage you to come to one of their open houses. These open houses usually consist of about an hour to an hour and a half in which you'll have a midwife present to tell you about all the great things that the facility offers, particularly telling you about the type of care we offer, um, the safety of the care that we offer, um, how you can um, how you can get educational tools you may need in order to have a safe um, Birth in the community, such as childbirth education classes, lactation support, as well as postpartum education, um, as well as encouraging you about the need for labor support and having doulas present. So your care would initially start with an, um, an orientation, and after you attend one of these orientations and you have a lot of your questions answered and a lot of information about the services that the center offers, you would then initiate care. Um, oftentimes, we find um, women and families that are looking for a birth care will come knowing they haven't received prenatal care anywhere else. But sometimes some families have received care other places that in which during your first visit, we may need those records from whatever provider you might've seen to review those records, to make a good determination on how we might be able to best meet your needs at that time. If you haven't received any prenatal care, then what we would do at the initial visit would be to give you a consent form where you'd have information about some of the risk and the benefits of having a birth center birth. It would also give you information about how to contact the facility, any charges that may be incurring, stuff like that. Um, so that's also sort of an essential part of that visit. You would also have your opportunity to bring someone with you to ask questions about um, the labor, the birth, pregnancy, depending on that gestational age. If you were less than, um, 18 weeks of pregnancy, you would come in for a visit every four weeks and in which the midwife would have you and your care person that comes with you, whether that be your partner or sister or friend, or maybe even your doula. And they'd ask a lot of questions from you, ask you questions about your health history, ask you questions about how you want your birth and labor to ask you how you perceive this process to be for you and your family because everyone may have an idea that they definitely want a vaginal birth but there's different ways that the midwifery team at the birth center may be able to support those ideas We'd also offer you different blood testing. Um, these are standardized um, across the nation. Blood testing that you would get even if you were to see an obstetrician or a midwife in, in a home birth setting or even in a hospital based setting. Stuff like your blood type um, testing you for different um, genetic um, diseases, depending on your ethnicity and your heritage. Um, stuff where we would ask you about exposure to certain um prior diseases like HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, syphilis, um, measles, mumps, different blood tests of this sort. And these would be conversations with you. Most of our families we work with are open to these standardized tests. Some, of course, are a little bit more leery about maybe blood testing or results or what this may indicate for you during a pregnancy. But what we're trying to do is screen for certain diseases and disease processes to maybe offer you the best care that is available. And also maybe even offer you interventions if we find certain things that are wrong to maybe correct those things. So that's why this These types of blood tests would be very important in that first trimester. Um, Some families are interested in genetic testing. Some families aren't. We definitely would love to do an initial sonogram to know um, exactly when your baby may be due, when we would anticipate that the birth to occur, but also to establish that your pregnancy is safe and sound, that it's actually in your uterus and not in any other parts of your abdomen. And that um, we, if we saw any initial concerns about the baby's growth, we could be able to identify those early to maybe get you in with a specialist or evaluate how you may be able to deal with that type of care. Um, and for the most part of the birth center, you, we would want you to see different midwives um, every visit. And that's because we usually work with a team of anywhere between two to six midwives, depending on the facility, to make sure that um, you'd have an opportunity to meet all the midwives so that when you did come in for labor and birth, you'd feel comfortable with each one because you would have seen each one at different points of your pregnancy. Um, So those are, I think, the initial tests that would happen during the first trimester. Um, We'd also want to talk to you a little bit about um, your own mental health during the pregnancy, Um, whether you had some pre-existing conditions or things that may sort of present themselves now that you're pregnant. We'd want to talk about other histories you may have in terms of maybe dental. Um, your dent, your teeth and, and dentistry. Um, maybe we'd want to talk about other health histories of your family may have, or maybe you've had surgeries, um, allergies, um, concerns that you have of toxins or foods that you, you've you been eating. Um, some families have more exposures than others. Some families are more well-versed on different things they should be eating or not eating during pregnancy. So that may be something else we may you know discuss with you in that first visit or second or third visit. We'd also want to ask you a little bit about um how you feel about this pregnancy. We never like to assume that, you know, just because you're here getting um care at a birthing facility doesn't mean that you may not want to either um continue the pregnancy or that maybe you, you have plans on maybe giving your baby up. You know, we meet all types of families and we like to meet them where they're at, where they're at in terms of what their ideals are. Um, most people of course are coming because they want to, you know, have their baby and keep their baby and raise their baby. But there are, you know, some families that may have other ideals and just want a safe um, environment to give birth to their baby. Um, so that's another consideration we would discuss with you. Um, trying to think of a few more health history questions. I'm quite sure there's a couple of more health history questions that come in there that we would um, talk to you about throughout that first trimester. Um, once you got a little bit further along in the pregnancy, somewhere around 26 to 28 weeks, we'd want to see you every two weeks. And one of the bigger tests that we would offer you at that time would be a glucose test. And a lot of families are familiar with that. And that's when you would consume a sugary solution and we would test to see how your body's able to process that. We do find at certain periods of pregnancy, particularly that second trimester, some women could be at risk for gestational diabetes. Um, We can discuss alternatives to that test. Um, Some of our birthing facilities will allow you to do finger sticks instead of actually receiving the sugar solution. Some of our families are concerned about some of the toxins in those sh- in those um, sugar solutions. In order to test you, we do, for the most part, um, at the facilities have um, ones that don't have certain. Um, um, uh, chemicals in them that would be, um, problematic. I'm trying to think of the name exactly of the, of the, of the thing that's in, in, in the sugar solution that a lot of families are concerned about, mm-hmm. but the name is escaping me right now. I'm sorry guys. Um, but we have one that wouldn't have those certain, um, um, chemicals in them that, a lot of families are concerned about. And other families just want alternative things that they can consume that would give them about a hundred milligrams of glucose to consume. Um, and that's an option because we, we do know that sometimes families are well-versed on other alternatives to test for gestational diabetes and pregnancy. Um, so that will happen around that second trimester. The other thing that we would discuss is perhaps considering doing a second sonogram. We definitely want um, our families to have an anatomy scan where we would look at the Um, baby's body parts and make make sure everything has been formed properly, make sure the cervix is nice and closed and that the placenta is in a good position and everything like that. But um, some families are concerned about the exposure of sonography during pregnancy and may not be as open to it. So those are conversations we have. We talk about the risk and the benefits and what your health history may allow and why that may be beneficial to you or may not be as beneficial to you. Um, So those are things we would discuss in that second trimester um maybe towards the third trimester is when we talk more about that whole labor and birth experience mm-hmm. how are we going to best support you to be prepared for this birth of your baby how are we going to notice these body changes that you've noticed from the first trimester carry themselves into the third trimester and how they're important for that birthing experience um, So we would discuss things like um, labor support, um, postpartum care, newborn care, how to um, choose a pediatrician, um, what things you would need for your baby when it comes home, you know, different things that may pertain more towards getting ourselves ready for the birth experience um, and what to know about you know, when to call your midwife or when to call some healthcare provider, whether it be the midwife or your doula or other people in your labor team to know what things we could do to best support you in that process. Um, so I think that's, that's mostly what the initial and the first and second and third trimester prenatal care visits would look like.
0: Wonderful. And it, that thank you so much for giving um, the listeners a nice synopsis. Um, from the beginning of pregnancy till the end. Um, In that course of pregnancy, while a person is receiving care um, from a midwife in a birth center setting, are there any policies and procedures that families should potentially be aware aware of, especially um, if a birth center is a freestanding birth center in relationship to um, being associated with the American um, uh, birth centers, um, the AABC, Is there any, you know, things that have to be done in order for a patient to be uh, a patient in that setting?
1: Well,
2: I, you know, I know your listeners are probably not just um, local to the New York City area, but maybe nationally or even maybe worldwide. You should recognize that whatever birth center you have chosen has some. Some form of regulation. And one of the things that the American Association of Birth Centers does is that they work with different um, birth centers to have regulation to make sure that all of the providers there have a certain skill set and have policies and procedures that they're abiding by. And not only that, but that once those standards are set, that they continue to meet those standards and that all the providers have been well-trained and make sure that they maintain their certifications in the areas of specialty. Most times that would be NRP. Sometimes that can just be lactation. There's other little smaller components to that. And that if there were concerns about different things offered at the facility, that someone is reviewing those charts to make sure that we have a good standard. And, um, that things are are sort of up to par. So you definitely want to make sure that you're choosing a birth center that has licensed providers. And typically when you have a birth center that is certified through the American Association of Birth Centers and maintains its accreditation through um, one of their um, agencies, that you would have these sort of standards met and that there would be, um, have stringent rules to make sure things are sort of being followed and that safety is of, of the greatest concern.
0: Of course, when, when there's an out of hospital setting. And so um, those things are definitely in place to, to make sure that standards are met um, and safety, like you mentioned, is, is upheld for all clients who are coming through those systems. Um, Because we, again, need to make sure that we are doing, and we're skilled as midwives and our staff is skilled so that we can handle um, any obstetrical emergency. And of course, normal birth where Um, that is concerned so thank you so much for for clarifying um one question that i do have and i'm sure a lot of listeners would have is how is that different in terms of policies and procedures for um, between the birth center and the hospital because a lot of people you know don't want a lot of interventions they don't want to you know um, be told that they have to do a certain thing in a birth center, uh, or I'm sorry, in a hospital. So how is that different? What are they going to be getting differently if they were to receive prenatal care in a birth center setting versus a hospital?
2: Well, the rules and the rules, particularly the policies and procedures set by the birth center is what the birth center has decided. Most times it would be the midwifery staff along with the collaborating physicians or transfer hospital where they come up with certain policies that they deem to be as safe and effective that are evidence-based um, That would be helpful to the families that they serve. So it's different a little bit more than a hospital, where sometimes it's hard to find that transparency of what is really a hospital policy versus the way that particular people practice. Because if you have a private provider at a hospital, It may be more or less that they'll follow certain rules, not because it's a hospital rule, but how they like to practice um, obstetrics and gynecology or midwifery. I would definitely encourage whoever was seeking out a birth center to find out a little bit more information about where, if goodness forbid, you weren't successful or needed some more assistance or higher level care throughout that labor or even pregnancy period, where would I be going to seek those services out? Mm-hmm. Would you directly transfer me to a hospital, whether that's in labor or while you're still pregnant, say there's a big anomaly or issue with your pregnancy or yourself or the baby, where would I be seeking out that care? Those are the conversations you definitely want to have. Um, because you want to know if if you weren't successful with even prenatal care, maybe there's an issue. Where am I going? Will that be some hospital that you feel comfortable with or one that you know is not going to work for your needs?
0: Right. Um, yeah. Okay. That's I don't great.
1: know if I answered the question. Though, so.
0: Yes, you really you did, did. You did answer the question. It is different in that in that regard because um, it sounds like there's more room for um, exercising your independence as um, a patient, as opposed. And it sounds like the um, policies and procedures would be more um, evident. They wouldn't be uh, sort of like you said um uh, not being able to understand whether they were policy and procedure or whether that was just the work style of that particular person um and so it sounds like you know policies and procedures in those environments um would be more evident and likely less um less medicalized but more according to safety needs um and and st- instead of like for example uh an iv you know is that something that's commonplace in the birth center you know yeah. when when you're yeah, when that- you're prenatally, or or even you know when you're in labor.
2: And that's a good point. It really isn't. And you can, of course, always ask to read them, but as a regular consumer, you'll be a little bit overwhelmed, you know, reading, you know, whether it's hospital-based policy or even birthing sensor policy, you may be overwhelmed with some of the medical jargon that will be mentioned in there. But for the most part, unless we need to, at a, at a birth center, unless we need to give you medications, meaning that your group be strep positive, when you're laboring, we don't usually place an IV. We will place one if you have other medical conditions. Say you've had a hemorrhage before in the past, or say you've had a lot of babies that are really big. That you have to have some sort of risk factor that we're concerned about that will say, you know what, we'll either place an IV with actual solution running or a Heplock. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's sort of a needle that's placed in your in your hand or your forearm, in which if we needed to, we could attach fluids to it. But it doesn't mean that fluids are actively running into you. So that may be something that, you know, you'd have the conversation about. And most times the midwives, if they wanted to offer something like that to you, They would have that conversation. Whether or not you want to have it is a question, but we want you to be aware of this is what we strongly think you may need. Now, some families, of course, will say, Well, I don't think I need that. Well, then we want to have a conversation about the risk of you not receiving whatever we're giving you, and maybe the benefit of you having the way, you know, of not receiving this intervention. And maybe that's the way that you want to approach you know, your, that's the way we typically approach the conversations. And that's the way that you should be willing to, and wanting to work with the care team that we want to have a conversation that we're just not going to tell you things that we do and not have that conversation that you may Mm -hmm. find in other environments.
0: So it sounds like it's just not, this is the policy. And this is what we do. It sounds like this is our policy. This, or this is what we are offering you based on your risk profile and let's have a conversation. So it sounds like it's, it's more of a workable, Um, situation as opposed to, well, you have to do this. This is our policy. And if you don't do it, I'll have to tell the doctor that
2: you're not being compliant, you know? So, yeah. We strongly (laughs) encourage certain things. Like if we know your group B strep positive, uh, we strongly encourage medications. We will again go over risk benefits. And if you still choose not to, we will accept that choice. And of course, we'll get you to sign a consent form agreeing that you have declined to have something like that. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes the one I get is the groupie strap treatment, the erythromycin in the eyes, because I don't, in certain states don't have this as a requirement, but in New York state, erythromycin placement after a birth, as well as vitamin K injection for newborns or standardized part of the care. And some families, for whatever reason, we don't even you probably have another podcast on risk benefits and stuff like that (laughs) of these these medications um, may say they don't want them. And then we get you to sign a consent form agreeing to not receive them. It's not, oh my goodness, you cannot deliver at our facility if your baby doesn't get erythromycin in its eye after it's born. Mm -hmm. It's the conversation and you declining the treatment and us getting you to sign a consent form to agree that this is not a treatment option that you're seeking out for whatever reason, you're not seeking it out.
0: And all of this is, is, is had this, con- these conversations are obviously had in the prenatal periods towards the end.
2: I'm assuming. Like, exactly. Or, I mean, because the, the challenging time of not to discuss an intervention is when you actually need it, need it because right. you your best self to ask questions and make a real informed decision at that point, it's usually hasty on whatever decision you're going to make.
0: Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Sounds like, you know, um, people have more choices, um, in this model, or at least that they have the ability to collaborate a little bit more um, and have some freedoms, it sounds. Um, so what are you noticing? Obviously you've been a practitioner for um, more than 17 years. It sounds like as, as a midwife, um, that is before you were doing other things. Um, but when you became a midwife and you've been a midwife for as long as you have been, what are some of this, the current you know, American healthcare system You know, how is it impacting prenatal care over the years?
2: One of the big um, concerns or issues that sometimes come up with prenatal care is actually access to care and access to timely care. Um, I find that some families have concerns with health insurance and trying to get adequate health insurance and trying to get care at a reasonable point of their pregnancy um, as well as options for care. Um, so you say you want a home birth or you say you want a birth into birth or even a hospital birth. How do you get access to that? Where do I go? How do I know how to start or navigate these systems? That's part of sometimes a little bit of a challenge for some families.
0: Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, one of the things I've noticed as a midwife is that, you know, when people, most people are finding out in the latter part of the first trimester, maybe you know, mid first trimester of their pregnancy, that is the time where, you know, some people are feeling really horrible, you know, they're, they're, you know, just got the shock that they're pregnant if they weren't planning the pregnancy, and really not having access, struggling to find an adequate care provider, insurance, and all of those things can sometimes be very, um, demanding in the first trimester. And so I have seen people delay their, um, seeking of those services just because they just can't do it at that moment because they're too, not feeling as well as they would like to feel, you know, trying to navigate the really difficult, um, system that we have here.
2: Um, I think some of these pitfalls have sort of allow certain populations to not receive respectable care. Um, and that's because there are a lot of nuances, a lot of, um, personal challenges or cultural issues that may allow them to not necessarily seek out care when they, when most society deems it to be the best time for them to seek it out. Um, I tell all families that no matter where you're at on the spectrum of prenatal care, meaning I don't want to have any assistance at all, to I am here from day one and I do exactly what you tell me care provider you should still try your best to work within the medical model to find some healthcare provider, because most times, even a small conversation, even one test may be helpful for you and your baby and that prenatal period. Thank you. Um,
0: That's important to note is that you should not uh, refrain from getting care, um, but you should definitely seek care of some sort so that you are are being um, checked because, Things, you know, pregnancy is such an intricate process and sometimes things um, are not happen- happening as well as they could, or you might need, you know, supplemental care support. And it's really important to get that, especially because our mm-hmm. the American healthcare system is so difficult to navigate sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, when time is not on your side and pregnancy continues to advance the longer you wait to receive care because you're trying to look for the perfect provider can sometimes, um, you know, delay you in receiving the proper care. And so it's, it's, you, you know, if you can at least establish care with someone, you know, while you're waiting or while you're looking for the perfect provider, that will be a lot better um, to do that than to delay care altogether. um, Because it really will just hamper the process of you trying to transfer Um, your care to that appropriate provider. And then it makes the the work a lot harder for that provider to try to catch you up to where you need to be in terms of the care that you should have received um, in that timeframe that was lost. So that's a very important point. Thank you for bringing that out. Um, So let's talk about standards. I know that standards of care is something that, you know, as midwives, that's common language for us. But what does standard of care really mean, and how does how should a um, uh, a person who's consuming care um, see that word? What does that word mean for a person who's consuming care?
2: Well, I think most um, um, individuals seeking out prenatal care, when they say the word standard, they they typically would assume that that's something that you do for me and for every single person. And while that is very true. Sometimes that standard can deviate depending on one, your health history, and two, different things that you're telling us about yourself that may either need to go above that standard or below that standard in order to meet your needs. Um, Some people have diabetes before they get pregnant. So there's no reason to give them a glucose test. So the standard of care would change for them because yes, it's standard for us to test everybody. But if you already have the disease, we're not gonna test you to see if you have the disease just while you're pregnant. Um, I would encourage um, the listeners to consider um, doing a little bit of, reading a little bit of education about birth. We have wonderful resources out there. There's a lot of consumer-based information that you can learn about each week of your gestational age that could be very helpful for you as you progress through this pregnancy that can help you to figure out where you're at in that spectrum instead of you... um, totally taking what your provider says as the black and white um, of everything that must need to be done or everything that should be done. I think it'd be helpful for you to have a little bit of background information for yourself to bring into those conversations you have with your provider.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, if you are a savvy black birther listener, you know that it's so important to vet everything that your provider is saying, um, because at the end of the day, that is how you become your own expert. Um, and and participate actively in your care. Um, as I've always said, as um, American healthcare consumers, myself included, we've been taught, you know, through the generations that, you know, the person who sits on the other side of the table with the white coat and all of the letters behind their names are experts and know more than us, you know, as healthcare consumers. And while that may be true when it's specific to the healthcare concern that we're dealing with, they may be the expert, they may be the educated one in that, but they are not expert in you. You are your own expert. You know yourself best. And mm-hmm. so it's so important to be um, knowledgeable of the, the healthcare concerns that you have or the wellness issues that you, or the things that you're facing, whatever it is, but you should be as expert, if not more expert in your own health and wellness journey. And so that you can let your healthcare provider know you know, this is not typical for me, or this is typical for me, or this doesn't work for me, or I would like to do this differently, you know, and have an idea of what it is that you're going to receive care for, um, so that you can have a conversation with your healthcare provider. And it's not more of a talking to, but it's a conversation. And that's so, so important. So again, thank you so much for saying that. Um, So now, of course, you know, being um a black midwife in new york city um and and a woman right and knowing the statistics the statistics that are facing black and indigenous birthing individuals is uh, you know astronomical and it, so it's not something that i know because you're in in you know deep into the community in terms of the birthing community this is not something that is new to you um but it is a problem and um this is why this platform has been You know, started. This is why so many other platforms and so many other things, you know, the birthing center that you are initiating, there's so many reasons why people like us and uh, individuals are putting things out there to help the community. But what do you see is problematic for Black and Indigenous uh, birthing individuals specific to prenatal care? What are some of the things that we're seeing in terms of statistics for those individuals? (sighs)
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest problem is access to care and Mm -hmm. particularly access to midwives that actually reflect the population that in which that client is. Um, Whether it's African-American, whether it's Hispanic, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your, your heritage is, native nations, whatever that is, to have providers that are of that particular heritage, that ethnicity, that background to give care to those persons. That is really one of the challenges. So not only just navigating the system, but getting care from the people that are similar to you is a big challenge. That's what I see as a little problematic. Mm -hmm. And while we recognize these problems, we are just on the beginning cusp of trying to figure out how we can get providers that reflect the community in which they're serving.
0: Absolutely. And it's so important to have that because there's there's a sense of relatability there, you know? When you're, when you're able to relate to the person that is sitting across from you, you can start to let some of those guards down, you know, those, those you know, when you are an, a marginalized person and you've been marginalized since the day you walked out of your mother's womb, mm-hmm. you tend to put up, you know, guards around yourself to protect mm-hmm. yourself because, you know, you're faced with, with, with um, challenges av- on every front. And so when you are in that environment and when people don't, that are caring for you do not reflect you, or there's no relatability, you tend to keep those guards up. And so to really speak your truth and to say what you're feeling, to be honest and all of those things, sometimes it's difficult for individuals when there's not a trust built. You can feel when you're a patient, when the care that you're receiving is genuine and and good or or just your number. Um but
2: look at look at the words you use, talking to you and not right, talking to
0: with you. you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's a huge difference. Um it's a huge difference when there's a language barrier, you know, mm-hmm. when you can speak the native language of the individual that you're, you know, you're across the table from. It's a big difference because they can again feel begin to feel comfortable and really speak what they have to, you know, say um without hesitation. Um, and the other piece of that is, you know, not only is that, is that there a relatability that needs to be, you know, had, but it's there's, um, an element of, um, Feeling like okay, I'm having a real exchange, right mm-hmm. it, it, when you have that comfort, you have a real exchange you be, you begin to build relationship and trust, and therefore you can again let let some of the the things that you've been guarding out so that you can receive the care that you need and you can you know describe what's really going on in your home if there's some social constraints or whatever the case is and so I've noticed as a midwife myself. That when when people feel loved, cared for, and they feel like they can trust their providers, that's when they really are allowed to um, blossom in that relationship with that care provider and really feel connected enough and trust that the provider has their best interests at heart. So that is, right. that's yes. huge, very, very huge.
2: The yeah. other big part of this, too, is actual health care dollars that mm. can help. These ideas, mm-hmm. because sometimes you may find a, a provider, a midwife that you can connect with, but your insurance will mm-hmm. not allow mm-hmm. to absolutely through, or you don't have insurance, and that is a big challenge for a lot of the families that I've, you know, started to get to know.
0: Absolutely, and and you know, even for insurance, insurance just does not, you know, it's just starting to come around to the idea of birth centers, right? That that has Correct. been something where now you know again with the efforts of the aabc and midwives and things like that are now you know being recognized via insurance and so insurance for the most part you know are pretty much paying for them especially if they're you know within network and things of that nature however the the issue for a lot of people is it may or may not be fully covered um you know and and that's definitely the the issue with with uh, home birth is in some cases home birth is not covered at all um, because it's out of network, there's so many pieces to this. Um, and it, when it comes down to the finances, and so having a fund having a you know, the birth center be supported with a scholarship fund or a home birth midwife be supported with a scholarship fund for those families who cannot afford that, is, that would be a, you know, a wonderful thing for so many birthing families, um, and, and create an equity across the board. You know,
2: Correct.
0: um, yep. and that is really where we're um where the, the missing link is for, for those patients or those people to have choice when it comes down to deciding where they would re- like to receive their care and from whom they would like to receive their care from. Um the the other challenge to that whole piece is not only having choice, but um having support, right? Um, unfortunately, you know, midwives are still fighting to be recognized across all the states, uh, different midwife types are still fighting to be recognized. And so this, this is not only just an issue of insurance or, you know, lack of, uh, home uh, birth center, uh, within, within the United States, it's midwives who traditionally have been owners and operators or people who, you know, who have been, um, holding, birth centers in their homes and, you know, creating places where, pay, you know, people and families can go and birth their babies um, that are outside of the hospital setting. But unfortunately, rules, regulations, lax, uh, the lackadaisical laws, legislature, make it really difficult for our midwives to to accomplish this. And
2: so. Um, and, and we find some of our colleagues in other states not being able to practice. I can tell you at least one, uh, mm-hmm. several percent that have closed because they no longer have physician backup.
1: Right. And, and, and
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: absolutely. And physician backup having to be the, 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 you know, only way that a birthing center can stay open. That Mm -hmm. is again, where we have these, these, um, the legislature needs to be rewritten and the laws need to be reestablished because, um, otherwise we will not be able to, um, will still keep hitting the same walls and having to jump over the same. Hurdles. Even
2: gaps, even gaps in care in terms of um, health insurance coverage. Mm-hmm. Even if you have a health insurance, sometimes they don't want to pay. We have one of the largest um, government based insurances that is still causing a lot of challenges mm-hmm. from coverage. So the, these gaps exist even even when you have insurance Absolutely. for them not for this type of care.
0: Absolutely. And so it's so important for families to hear this message because, you know, I, I used to, those who know me know that I, I used to work in the Amish community and I've, I've always been one to uh, talk about that community because they taught me so much. They taught me a lot about um, fighting for what you want, standing firm, gathering. I mean, these individuals really have, you know, showed a lot of the, the governments, the local governments, um, where they live, listen, this is how we want to be treated. And we're not going to conform to your ideals, your laws, or what have you. For example, they, they school their children to eighth grade, and that's it. There's no truant officers, there's no one coming after them. There's no one saying, Oh, you have to do this, you have to do that. Their children are educated up to the eighth grade. And that's it. Um, There's so many things that they do that um, they do in in sync with each other so that they are a larger form, um, a larger voice. Um, One of the biggest things that I've seen as a challenge to trying to get uh, options for birthing families is that we really don't have a good um, consumer support, right? We as um, healthcare consumers we are really um, ignorant and I use that word in, in not a derogatory way, but we're ignorant when it comes down to healthcare consumerism. And um, if we were savvier consumers, um, we would realize that um, we've been um, spoken down to, we've been manipulated really. And, in our, in our areas, and our cities and our uh, places where we receive care have been monopolized. Um, And so it's, Healthcare has been given to us, and we've just accepted it um, as as excellence or as standard. Um, and so, it's really important for the community to come around this idea of having other options. Um, it would be a beautiful thing for every American um, birthing person to have home, hospital, and birth center be viable options for them to receive prenatal care, to birth safely, and and to receive newborn and postpartum care. It, it's, not,
2: it would, um, it's not a crazy idea. <laughs> no, it's not. It would be even be- better if we had certain zones that in which women or families that live in certain areas would be able to connect with their community-based providers. Mm-hmm. This is what we do in other industrialized nations, Absolutely. particularly national insurance. So you don't have to search around that you know that this is your district, this is your zone. Mm-hmm. You have several providers, not just midwifery but health care providers mental health all yes. types of to help give you the services you need it may be more beneficial in the long term for everyone now, for please.
0: everyone and right i mean when you say everyone not only just the the clients but the providers um you and i both know what burnout feels like as a midwife mm-hmm. and so it would be wonderful to have, you know, a zone that or an area that we worked in and we specifically took care of that community and that community could rest assured that they would receive their prenatal care from this particular midwife group, this particular physician group or whoever it is, and that they would receive that care. No questions asked. It's already approved. But unfortunately, you know, United States back in the 1940s, when all of these countries in the United Nations came together together. You know, to try to figure out, you know, healthcare. Um, all of the developed countries, except for the United States, decided that, univ- that healthcare was a human right and that universally all people, all citizens of their countries were to receive he- healthcare. United States was the only one that walked away from that meeting and decided that that was not the case, um, that they were going to make um, healthcare a commodity. And so, of our national funds, we spend 20% yearly on healthcare, and we still have really, really poor outcomes when it, turn, when it comes down to maternal health and um, infant health and mortality and morbidity. So, um, you know, we really need to do a better job as a country uh, when it comes down to this, but we really need the consumers to um, be on our side. Uh, Midwives have been fighting the fight for a very long time. You know, we really need the consumer's support. So I encourage you to find locally um, who you can support, um, what's going on in your community as a community member, and get involved and support the causes of the midwives to offer adequate, um, unbiased, you know, care for all people, um, and giving you your choice back, your your voice back um, and not monopolizing you, but honestly mm-hmm. giving you a choice for where you want to receive your prenatal care.
2: Yeah. Cause I think one of the challenges is that when I've talked to families, they always remember the problem once they become pregnant and mm-hmm. they forget about the problem. Once the baby's born, then they mm-hmm. get pre- oh, remember the insurance. Oh, I have got to remember. I'm supposed to stay on top of that fight. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you in this pregnancy but for all people with that insurance in every pregnancy absolutely Sorry.
0: that's a great point i, I didn't even i've never thought of it that way you know mm-hmm. when you're pregnant you think about the problem of your insurance being inadequate and all of those other things and you forget about it and that's so true once mm-hmm. the baby's born it's like it's gone the situation doesn't you know bother you anymore and then you're pregnant again and you're like oh I still have sucky insurance, even though my, my spouse, you know, switched plans. It still sucks. <laughs> you know, we're, we, we're no better insured, but you know why I, you know why I, I really believe that is, is again, because we're not savvy healthcare consumers um, mm-hmm. because we don't know how insurance really monopolizes our um, ability to receive care from whom, where, and how much is going to be paid. They really don't understand how much control insurance companies have over that. Um, and then how it, it's all connected in this very very delicate web of of this healthcare system that we are um, in. So people really need to understand the nuances of it so that they can um, know how to navigate through it in a way that still gets them adequate care and for the min- minimal amount of money. And um, and so that they come up on top, you know, as opposed to completely being unaware. Um, and then struggling the entire time that they're pregnant, you know, when that's not the appropriate time to be stressed no. out trying to figure it out. It really is not. Um, so it really encourage you to be up on your consumerism of, of your healthcare, specifically um, for your pregnancy before you get pregnant. Um, so do you have um, any, you know, advice for our listeners in terms of safeguarding themselves, how to you know, be self-advocates. Any last uh, encouraging words for them?
2: Well, a couple, two things I would keep in mind is one is that your baby will be born at the right time and in the right way. So while, you know, if you, if you try to navigate the system and it doesn't work out where you can have a home birth, if that's what you wanted, or birth center birth, trust that your body will deliver your baby at the right time, in the right way, even if it's not the way that your, your mind is envisioning this birth to be. The second thing I want to kind of make sure families are aware of is that you should be your best advocate. Whatever it is that you think you want, you have to advocate for it because sometimes the way that our system is set up, at least here in the United States, it doesn't always let the doors open. You may need to work a little bit to push those doors open. Um so I would definitely, you know, encourage you to sort of stay that 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 route if this is what you want find someone and talk to them in a realistic way about whatever it is and how we might be able to help you. Sometimes we are reaching when we know we got serious health problems and this may not be the best place for you or your baby, but other times it does seem reasonable choice. We should be able to find someone to support what we need. So.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your insight and your words of encouragement to the listeners and definitely for being um, a trailblazer out there in the community for the last twenty years that you've been doing this, um, and really, you know, putting your 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 you know feet forward, your feet down to the pavement, and moving forward in a way that is um, meaningful for the community, um, especially with the initiative to um, start a birthing center in New York. So, um, if you could give us a little bit of information about, you know, um, how people can reach out to you and what your your endeavors are regarding the birth center.
2: You can find us at Haven Midwifery Birthing Center. Um, we have a tab on that website where it says donate. And even if you can only donate $2, every dollar would help us get closer to opening our doors to be able to offer great care. We do plan on offering care to women and families that have um, non-commercial-based insurances as well as Medicaid-based insurances so that you know, we can offer our services to all families, not just ones that have private insurance.
0: Well, thank you so much for for joining me and for um, talking to us and letting us know more about prenatal care from the birth center perspective. Thank you so much, Trinesha.
2: Thank you for this (laughs) opportunity.
0: Voice Messages is designed to give listeners a way to offer spoken feedback to show hosts. Click the link on the show profile and record a message for up to one minute. Click send this message and your question or comment may be featured in an upcoming show. It's that simple. Like what you hear so far? Never miss a show by clicking that subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you, so thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the show. Hello again. I know you guys are probably expecting to hear from another midwife, or at least hear me interview another midwife, but I must say, trying to pin down a home birth midwife for an interview has proven itself very difficult. Home birth midwives are out there hitting the pavement and babies are being born every day. And so here I am, a former home birth midwife, giving you guys some information on the components of prenatal visits uh, from the home birth midwife perspective. So here we go. Typically, just like the hospital setting and the birth center setting, we are you know, conducting interviews as well with clients and you're looking at you know trying to figure out a correct fit making sure that you're vetting that provider and you're looking at skills and experience and things of that nature and so that's happening in the first meeting subsequent once you are or you have decided to hire that midwife now you're looking at those first few moments or those first few visits where the midwife is now expressing the process of how you are navigating through the care that she provides um, and you're looking at the number of appointments in that time frame you're looking at how appointments are being conducted. And so things like sonograms and labs um, and different um, appointments and how that's carried out will be discussed. Typically in the home birth setting, midwives are doing the same things that midwives are doing in hospital and birth center settings. And that is checking your blood pressure, doing the same labs, uh, checking sonograms as frequently as uh, necessary. However, midwives in in those settings tend to do, I guess, usually less is more. And so you have a little bit more wiggle room because there's really not any policies or procedures in place to adhere to. It's really just being well-educated and informed and you making choices based on that information um, and that standard and creating a plan with the midwife. Um, some midwives will do things differently than others. However, it's pretty much the same thing as being offered to you. And you have the ability to choose and make those choices based on that. Um, and so labs in the first trimester are going to be labs that are really looking at your wellness and your health, um, the status of your, of your blood counts, Um, The other things that will be offered to you are uh, testing that looks at genetics uh, between you and the other partner, um, and then chromosomal testing to look at uh, the the DNA makeup of the growing baby. Um, And so those are things that will be offered to you. Again, some of those things are optional, and you can have that discussion with your home birth uh, midwife. Uh, sonograms is something that's done in the first trimester as well. and usually the sonogram in the first trimester is the most accurate sonogram. That's going to give us you know some dates uh, in your pregnancy as to around about time that we should be expecting your baby to come earthside. Um, and so we'll look at sonograms and then um, as the pregnancy advances, Uh, to the second trimester after 12 weeks. uh, Those appointments will, again, be monthly. Uh, That's very similar to the hospital and the birth center settings. And so those appointments will be frequently um, every month and then you'll go down to every two weeks and then weekly once you hit a certain time frame in your pregnancy. In the second trimester, we're looking at sonograms, namely the sonogram that's gonna look at your baby from head to toe, so again, very similar. Um, and those sonograms may or may not be done as frequently as um, done in the hospital setting, it just really depends on your care, what's going on with you specifically, your healthcare needs and that of your of your growing baby. Um, and so there's some leniency in that and there's some um, room wiggle room for uh, discussing with your care provider how you wanna carry that out. Um, there are some care providers that will also say that you have all the decision making is in your hands. So again, it depends on that provider and it also depends on how you vet that provider and which provider you have found that fits for you. As the pregnancy advances through the second trimester and sonograms are obtained, we're also gonna look at your sugar uh, levels. And that's to determine whether or to screen for potential gestational diabetes. So that's a test that comes up uh, in the second trimester. Like uh, the birth center setting, and even in the hospital setting, some places or some providers would allow um, for less chemicalized drinks. So things that are going to give you pure sugar uh, that can be found in perhaps a a, a juice or 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 a piece of candy um, so that you can get that extra sugar low so that your blood sugar levels can be um, assessed to see if your body handles extra sugar well. So that's um, some ways that you you know will be testing you throughout the prenatal time frame in the home birth setting. Now also, taking your blood pressure, checking your urine periodically, um, and doing all of the normal things that are standards, those will be offered to you in the home birth setting as well. The difference is is that you have more of an ability to collaborate and you're really gonna be dealing with one or two providers. Usually most home birth practices don't have more than two midwives on staff. Um, And again, just to keep things more uh, centered on you and a little bit more um, tailored to your needs and and you're not needing to get used to a lot of different people. So that you can have an open conversation with that provider about how you want to address your prenatal care. Again, standards will be upheld and uh, things will be offered to you so that you can make decisions. Uh, moving into the third trimester, uh, you're going to see other tests that will be offered, like uh, checking your blood counts again for your iron levels, because sometimes women struggle with anemia during pregnancy. So that's going to be something that might be mentioned throughout the pregnancy uh, at different intervals. And then lastly, there's a test called uh, group beta streptococcus, a different facility. Um, some home birth midwives, due to their patient low, may actually have... And so that's another thing that will be tested for Um, during your pregnancy or towards the end of the pregnancy. So throughout the care that you'll be receiving in the home birth setting, it depends on on the home birth midwife. Some home birth midwives will provide this care to you in your home. They will also provide the lab work services as well. Again, it depends on the midwife. They might outsource you to get your lab work in at a lab or an office where you can come in and receive that prenatal care. And then of course, when it's time for you to to birth your baby, you'll be birthing in the comfort of your home. So it's very similar, but uh, things tend to have a little bit more of a laid back feel um, and you can feel a little bit more freer to uh, have conversations and be comfortable in in those settings. Um, However, just because things are slightly less in the home setting does not mean that you should not offer uh, questions up and you should not have that same collaborative um, mindset when you are receiving care in the birth center setting and also in the hospital setting. So I hope that this you know, really gives you an understanding of the uh, care that's received in the home birth setting uh, with respect to the other two settings that birth is being offered in. Now for a message about Haven Midwifery Birthing
2: Center. I was working on my master's in public health. I didn't know what I was going to do, but then the midwives told me how they actually delivered babies and gave prenatal care. I said, wouldn't it make sense? I love working for people of color. I love staying in the city. I want to work for impoverished people. Why wouldn't I be a midwife? I remember one of my first births, it was a woman who had a natural conception. She delivered just uneventfully with a beautiful water birth. And she said to me afterwards that this was the best birth she had had. You let me do whatever I needed to do. You let me feel how I needed to feel. And I said, this is where I need to be. To have providers that understand and accept and wanting to work with different ethnicities, I need to support women in this way. And I started to think, how can I create a birth center? Not that I would ever think as I became a midwife that I would even even create or even think of. I'm like, this is what Other people who have money do, not small people like me who work in the community. All midwives, when we graduate school or we come into midwifery, we have this notion that we want to help women. But at some point, you have to say to yourself, how much can you give without either having time off or not being compensated? And I think that was what the challenge is. I do the work for compensation, but I got to admit, sometimes I don't. Because sometimes when you work with people with Medicaid-based insurances, you don't get paid. And you just say, okay, it is what it is. Hopefully when the doors of heaven open up, I'll be able to keep in because I got a few free births. I'm hopeful that we can change the plight of women laboring in pregnancy and birth, not just birth centers itself, but maybe let some of that sort of move itself to the hospital course or even educate our women more so it's what they'll know about what signs or things to look out for, questions to ask, or even have classes where we can offer providers the ability to learn how to know their own biases and how they can work through those biases to meet the needs of their clients. And that's what made me start to work with my other three colleagues to try to create a birth center. And we're, we're definitely on our way. We feel very confident that the women of New York want to support this, that our legislators are behind us. So it's not just to me about a birth center. It's, it's, it's bigger than that. It's something about midwifery and birth workers and us all working collectively to educate all of the country and humanity. I'm quite sure I'm just on the cusp of the beginning of the greatness.
0: Some of you may know that chubby little, cubby, all stuffed with fluff, naive, slow-witted, friendly, willy-nilly silly old bear named Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh had this way of saying such wonderful phrases and quotes. And so if you don't know who Winnie the Pooh is, it's likely when you enter the world of parenthood, you will probably know or find out who Winnie the Pooh is. Of his many quotes, this particular one was very fitting. And I quote, a grand adventure is about to begin. Pregnancy is a grand adventure indeed. I hope that listening to this podcast has given you some clarity on the components of a prenatal visit so that your expectations are appropriate of excellent client-centered care based on evidence and facts which will inevitably lead you to being a savvier person while receiving prenatal care. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Savvy Black Birther and a special thank you to my guests, midwives Paula and Tranesha for joining me for this conversation. As I always say, when education and empowerment meet, decision-making capabilities improve and individuals are confident to stand for themselves and communities are no longer paralyzed by fear but mobilized towards a desired outcome. And as Angela Davis says, radical simply means grasping things at the root. And so we have to be radical in our pursuit of unbiased healthcare, and I believe being radical starts with first being educated and empowered. Next week, we're going to talk about the sonogram, the great pretender. And this will offer you an abundance of information so that you can make informed decisions around sonogram examination during your pregnancy journey. Thanks for joining me this week on the Savvy Black Birther. Make sure to visit my website, Sakina Health, that's S-A-K-I-N-A Health dot net, where you can find evidence-based information, resources, and more while you're at it. If you found value in the show, I'd appreciate a rating or a review. And don't forget to tell a friend or a family member. This will help me reach many more black birthing families. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in for the next episode. Be informed, be equipped and be savvy black birthers.